This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is not only the creator and showrunner of Billions, the writer of the enduring classic Rounders, the writer of Ocean's 13, solitary man writer-director, but also one of the card-playing degenerates in Michael Clayton, it is the unbelievable, the awesome Brian Koppelman. Brian, thank you so much for being a part Um, of One Heat Minute. I am such a... I'm such a big fan. I'm so pleased to be here. I, I have to point out, and, and because I want to, uh, all those credits are with my lifelong creative partner, David Levine. You know, we do all of this course. stuff together. So I'm the co-writer, co-director of, of all that stuff. And uh, Dave's an equally big uh, Heat fan and fan of the podcast, too. So, yeah, thrilled to be here, dude. Oh, thank you, Brian. And thank thanks, David, in, in advance. Now, if you haven't heard Brian's terrific podcast the moment you must listen to it um i found one of his episodes particularly the one with chris mcquarrie i've listened to maybe 15 times one of the best episodes of any podcast you must get that in your ears that's a desert island podcast you have to listen to so if you haven't do that subscribe after this show but he was also part of the rewatchables godfather podcast another podcast that is re-listenable to and the thing that really made me say like brian was always someone i wanted to get on one heat minute when it was happening it just never worked i finally been able to get him now but when i listened to that godfather podcast the one thing that strikes me is you said a sentence i believe to the guys and i don't think they grilled you on it which was you were trying to work something out in a script and i felt a real kinship with you because you said i went back and watched that michael fredo scene over and over and over and over again because I needed to figure it out. And I thought, this is a guy who might, we might share some of the same like scrutiny in the way that our brains operate, like just scrutinizing living daylights out of something you love because you want to understand the mechanics of why it's so sublime. So I thought it would be perfect for us to chat. Yeah, well, I'm, and I think I share, I think there are uh, people who do what I do for a living, maybe you can split us into different groups, but there's certainly a big group of us who are so um, obsessive about the the work that we love, the work that made us want to do this, or that you know uh, propelled us to another level. Uh, you don't stop engaging with these sort of primary texts, or I don't. I go back to them, uh, I rewatch them, I think about them, I read the script sometimes, I'll re- watch any commentary I-, I can. Like I just went through the, if you ever do uh, some sort of a one Zodiac minute, you know? (laughs) Oh no, this is something that I keep getting tweeted at me, Brian. I keep getting tweeted at me and I'm like, it's a, it's a big project. Maybe it, maybe it needs three people. Maybe it needs three people, someone to do the. People keep tweeting at you about Zodiac? Yes. It's because Travis Woods, my, my one heat minute productions partner, um, who's doing our inherent vice podcast. People are like, you guys are going to do something next. We know that all the presidents by the, by the time you guys finish all the presidents, man, and increment vice, there's going to be a gap. What's next. And we want it to be Zodiac. And, 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 
you know, it's you're just adding fuel to the fire is all it I would has say. To be Zodiac, man. <laughs> like I went down, I did this with Zodiac last year where I watched it one night again and I, I, I was lucky enough. I watched it uh, last night. I watched it last night. <laughs> so oh, no, I actually that's did. weird, really? <laughs> yes, so, I actually watched it last night. <laughs> I watched I so went this thing, maybe it was yeah, it was the end of last year. Um when the first time I saw that movie, and then we should we'll talk about heat, but the first time I saw that movie uh, it was, I was with David and I were lucky enough and maybe my wife, Amy was out there with us, but I'm not sure she was there. No, I think David and I were with Steven Soderbergh and David Fincher called Steven and said, I'm just about finished with the new movie. Can I show it to you? Oh. And Steven said he was with us and Fincher said, we'll bring those guys. And, um, so the two of us went and I think, uh, one of another actor was there a friend of ours, all of ours who we'd all worked with. And so it was this group of maybe five of us and David, and we watched it before it was done. Oh my goodness. Uh, and so, and it was incredible. Like most of the effects were in, but not all of them. And, and I loved it. And then I saw it maybe one other time, but I'm not sure I understood that it was a masterpiece. It's a masterwork. Yeah. Oh. And then last year, as I started watching it again, and I love, always have loved Fincher, uh, I watched it like three, four days in a row. And then I got, there's tons, you know, there's many bonus pieces that go with it. So there's, Fincher did this like hour long sort of thing where he talks about it. There's a commentary, there's a special. And I watched all of it. I was about to say, (laughs) I had to, and I, I got to meet Jake recently and I grilled him for an hour and a half about all different moments in the movie. Oh you got to do it. You got to do it. There's so much in there to unpack. Oh my God. It's a, it's so rich. You know, last night I felt like it was my, I was doing a bit of uh brushing up on Ruffalo. I was doing another podcast interview with uh, some friends and I was defending Mark Ruffalo's career. And I, I just was having like a Toshi viewing. I was just watching, I watched the scene and I actually went back and watched the whole thing again of the acceleration when they find, Lee when they first find Lee and oh. there's that great scene where it's um it's Anthony it's Elias Codius and it's Mark Ruffalo grilling him uh and I just rewound it a few times because I was just watching uh he's just oh my he just every single part of all those guys performances and the way that he has this confidence that as he's sort of throwing himself under the bus and giving all this great information away just the the poise the confidence that I smell, I smell you. There's something wrong with you. I just, I don't know. Well, just, that whole well, scene well, is just flabbergasting. Perfect in that film. Oh. The way he's centered, the, yes. the way he's in his body in that film is just incredible to me. Every, every single performance. And you know, there are people who were critical of Jake's performance in it, but I got to say he's not Robert Downey Jr. And he's not Mark Ruffalo, but He's great in the movie. No, he's just where you're supposed to be in the movie. He's he's exactly uh, he's the anchor because Downey's uh, Avery is nuts. It's like the most manic of his manic energy, perfectly harnessed, and that's exactly what you want. Like you need Avery to be that engine, that sort of um, uh, you know conspiratorial sort of energy that's going through, and he just leans into it. I know he he sort of experience. He's like, I'm never working with Fincher again. It was too maddening, but like that connection that dialogue that seems to be happening director to him to the way it's translating his performance is so perfect and jake's the anchor and really it's about he gets the third the whole third act is his he's of just course. hovering the now he's out of the booth 
Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's his. And oh, so- I love you watched it last night. I mean, I do think, I think you're going to have a hard time getting away from this at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Look, see, but, see, yeah. I, I had a couple, like, I've got this one guy on Twitter. I can't remember his handle for life of me, but he's a really great supporter of the shows that we do. And every time I mention Zodiac or someone mentions Zodiac, he'll just sort of put a little like at bl- one Blake minute and just be like, hey, man, thinking about yeah. Zodiac? And, 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 well, uh, so I think now you've kind of rather emphatically done this. But let's get to Heat because yes, I know yes, that you have a deep appreciation. Obviously, Godfather Part Two is probably one of your favorite films of all time, as, I, as is absolutely mine. But Heat is a masterpiece that I know that you uh, you have really strong opinions about. And what's so funny, Brian, this is before we even get to your relationship with it, is there's very few people who I ask, what minute would they like to do in Heat, who who say choices to me that go, oh, he's my people. And the weirder your choice of minute, the more I know that you and I have a kinship. So uh, well, before we even get to the minutes slash minutes, we're just probably going to talk about a whole scene together. Um, but I, I, I love that. Tell me about your relationship with Heat as one of those texts that you go back and revisit. Well, it absolutely is. I mean, for me, uh, it is a masterpiece. Even And what I love about Heat is it's a flawed masterpiece. There's something, whereas The Godfather 2 is a perfect film. Yeah. Uh, you could teach, you you know, people do teach it. It, it is, it's flawless. It's um, it's an, an artist working at, at, at the, the, the height of his abilities uh, but also as long as it is with incredible discipline, what we have in heat is somebody, a filmmaker, a master still though, overcome by his obsessions. And this, uh, this, uh, uh um, man's willingness, uh, or inability to stop himself from becoming a slave to his obsessions, uh, even though I think it makes the film perhaps less perfect it makes it utterly compelling for me. <laughs> yes. and, and it makes it something that I can't uh, look away from. And so I'll heat, I'll watch sections of heat. I'll watch the whole movie. I, I definitely haven't gone. I definitely haven't gone a year since it came out without watching it. Um, there are times I've watched it three times in, in a year. Uh, I might, I might fast forward certain sections of, of the film <laughs> that I have before. And of course, as you covered so well, I can watch the silent moment of uh, uh, this, of, of Chris buying the explosives. Oh. I can watch that and rewind it and try to understand the dude with the bottleneck, the bottle glasses, over and over again to try to figure out what did he shoot that day? Like, what did Michael? What did he shoot? What did he tell them to say? What did he tell them to do? What's Val nodding at? What is the guy? Like every single moment in that I can watch over and over again to try to just understand what's happening uh, filmmaking wise. So you go back to Heat for a variety of reasons. You go back to it to understand his cover as a filmmaker, to understand his coverage schemes, to um, understand the power positions people take, you know, his staging basically yeah. of the big dialogue scenes. Um, you guys do that in billions to, to, to praise yourself and David, you guys and your coverage schemes in billions are, are the show. That's how you can feel the power shifting between characters in. It's sure. like, no, it it's must, not, it must be a, a knife's uh, edge of like, how do we, how, how, how is, how is the power of this particular character in this moment going to be completely enunciated by how the camera is moving? <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and, and of course, you know, we're not thinking about Heat or Coppola or Scorsese or Spike Lee or any of the influences, but that stuff is uh, hardwired at a certain point yes. In, yes. in the way that you see these sort of titanic figures going at each other. Um, and, and, you know, there are, when you think about story turns, although, although Heat isn't about uh, a surprising plot twists mostly, you know, the moment when Vincent and his guys walk out and they're being looked at by uh, Neil and his guys uh, and and Vincent notices it and gets a kick out of it and that whole thing, that the way that that works structurally is clearly influenced us. Uh, uh, and the dialogue is, you know, incredible in the movie. Uh, the performances are just right, you know, Al's just right up to the fucking line. Joy. <laughs> to watch and uh, and think about, you know. And I could have easily picked the moment with Edie and Bob, the first moment uh, when they're sitting uh, at the counter. You know, I it's easily could have picked that uh, as an excellent minute. Uh, the, because if you're a fan of this movie, you know, you do, and you're, you are interested, I think, in the idiosyncratic, mo in the little windows into the characters, the, the, the small moments that just show you how deeply uh, man got inside these these archetypes. Because, you know, to him, they were these real people, obviously, and he made L.A. take down. They were these real people. But but to him, they, they represented a, a kind of God. They're, 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 they're warring gods, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then he went about making them these incredibly specific and flawed warring gods. And, and then he put around them, you know, just this incredible group of compelling, fascinating character. So I understand your obsession and I think it's a movie that's built by obsession and for obsessive people. Yeah. The character, be obsessed. Yes. Themselves, every single character in Heat, yeah, um, except maybe Edie, uh, is completely obsessed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and I mean, even Al's stepdaughter, Port Natalie Portman, is obsessed with her father. Everybody has something that, that an obsession that can that can br take them down in yes. the movie and i think uh, i think that and that's... wayne bro is obsessed with with <laughs> killing sex workers <laughs> i was just gonna say i think it's kevin, dude, we i got to work with kevin gage on knockaround guys oh the, my he's a God. He tough that vin diesel beats up and knockaround guys so i've uh which was like after after heat and all i did was pump him for heat stories oh kevin gage the most underrated performance as a villain in any movie like later on when nolan makes the dark knight they're like wow isn't it great to have a character that's just sort of simmering in there like jaw like the shark from jaws who's just causing all this chaos and you know you know wreaking havoc for the characters who are actually trying to do battle here and it's like yeah it's called wayne Grove. Michael Mann did it in 95 yeah. and Kevin Gage. I had to get it Kevin Gage. I had got, to get it yeah, he's he's already done it. Uh so wonderful. But you know, I think those in idiosyncratic moments it's like that's that's another part of the whole relationship with the movie. I had a great chat with a Bostonian film critic many times during this pro project, Sean Burns, and he and I were talking and we're having a fun time, you know, you talk about it as a flawed masterpiece because Sean's like, I don't like the Diane Venora character. She drives me a bit nuts, but he loves the movie, of course. And some people have that relationship with different characters and I can understand. But I just said there was one moment where we were talking about the contrived way that she sort of, 
eviscerates Vincent in that scene where he goes and picks her up from the 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 yeah. uh, dance the dance hall or whatever it is the bar. And I said, "Man, have you?" The way I access her is I think about how many times you've had a fight with an ex that you rehearsed. How sure. many nights has this woman washed the dishes alone and thought of exactly what she would say if he gave her an, a moment of his actual attention? And when she gets it, she knocks it out of the park. Like she's been rehearsing this scrubbing dishes so many times and that is the way that I access her. So for me, it's not contrived, it's rehearsed. And Well, you need pressure. I mean, listen, I understand you need the pressure on Al. You need the pressure on Vince. Yeah, you do. And something to push him into, you know, to allow his obsessiveness to re- retake, take hold, right? You do, I get that. Yes. But I do think that's the weakest part. I mean, I, I agree with Sean. That is the weakest part. <laughs> well, Sean will, Sean will be very happy listening to it. He's I'm got the really compliment endorsement. He's very well drawn. That's where I don't think she's the most well drawn character. By the way, this is coming from a guy who, you know, co wrote the Joe, which almost ruins Rounders. So I'm sensitive. <laughs> Uh, for sure. And, you know, like, again, as she's a terrific actress as uh, Gretchen Maul's a terrific actress. But sometimes the writing, you know, when when a young I mean, for us, man was older. But for us, young guys writing our movie round, we 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 were young guys writing about guys. And sometimes you don't have the experience or, the, you know, man, it doesn't seem to me was as fascinated by that character as he was fascinated by even the smallest characters in the rogues gallery. Yeah, or Charlene. And Charlene feels very, well, Charlene is the, the most mom. drawn out woman. Because she's a gun mall. <laughs> yes. Right, and he wants, the gun mall is a character he can invest in in that movie. Yes. She understands their code. And so she's of their code. Yes. And so yes, he gives her the most heroic moment in the movie. The gesture. Right? The yeah, gesture. the gesture. The gesture Gives her the most important of the film. Absolutely. Oh, man. All right, let's get to our... I'm not even going to do the minutes because Brian's already derailed me with the next project. We've already talked, to, <laughs> we've talked about everything else. So we're going to talk about the scene that Brian wanted to talk about, which is the amazing dialogue between Tom Noonan's Kelso and, and Neil McCauley's Robert De Niro, who they're pitching this job to him. And it is... I love, and I know you probably get a kick out of this, just looking at the cast and how you throw the alchemy of the different cast he worked across, but seeing someone like De Niro stand in front of someone and them not wilt is so impressive to me. And I think that that really shows the metal of other actors. And so Tom Noonan, both in physicality, but also just as a guy who just seems to be so dialed into whatever he's doing, he is not intimidated at all in this scene. And it's just so beautiful. You've got this little other conversation happening with Nate negotiating with poor Van Sant and you've got this but this the the clash of these guys together so what Brian and I are going to do I'm going to uh, kick this off it is around uh, the 30 it's about the 36th minute is the middle but you guys I'm just going to give you the exact coding in just a second but we're going to watch the scene I'm going to put that in afterwards we're going to watch the scene together now and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it what is it it's a bank. It depots cash on Thursday for distribution to all the other branches yeah. to cover Friday payroll checks. So on Thursdays, the command branch has got a full whack. On the prowler, strong. Strong through the front door. How many guys? Uh, four or three plus a driver. You walk in, you knock them over, you walk out. And you want a hundred thousand advance against a ten percent cut for that? Uh huh. 
Sounds like an address to a cowboy score. They hit the hold-up alarms. I got to get out of there before the cops show. What is that? They hit three hold-up alarm systems. Two telco and a cellular. See, but the signals aren't going anywhere because... See, the night before, you cut in and trick out the alarm system computer to turn itself and the video recorder's off 20 minutes before you walk in the door. Architectural, electrical engineering plans. I got all I got schematics, I got the boards already built that go straight into the CPU. What's the estimate? 12.1, 12 12.2 12 million. You're on. Congratulations. And to give you a little idea of where my estimates come from, this is a printout. Nobody knew the merch was yours. Be that as it may, my way you get 100% from the insurance company and take the bonds back from us at 60 cents on the dollar and make yourself another 40%. The operation doesn't skip a beat, everybody makes out. Sure, you got a deal. Good, because there's no percentage everyone gets their underwear in a twist over this. Yeah. So you have your man call me and we'll set the meet. Yeah, okay. Nice talking to you. You gonna deal with these guys? So words on the street, it's okay to steal my stuff. I'm gonna kill the sons of bitches. Have Harry bring me the spreadsheets for Canary Islands offshore. As I was saying, that's not really an estimate. Those are exact figures. I had a print on here of the uh, cash flow of the bank for the past two months. How do you get this information? It just comes to you. This stuff just flies through the air. They send this information out. I mean, it's just beamed out all over the fucking place. You want to do is know how to grab it. See, I don't know how to grab it. Um, okay, here we go. 13.9 million. As I've said on this show many times before, there it is. Yeah, man. S so good. Such a, such a great exchange. There's so many fastidious details. I love the pens in his pockets. I love the printouts from an old like dot matrix printer. I love the synthesis of like this emerging world, which you have to contend with a lot in your stuff that you've recently written about. Like you know, there's this omnipresent world where data is flying places and it can get hacked. And this is such early days. And they just deliver like this is me stealing from the internet in like five sentences. Um, I just it's such a wonderful scene. Well, you know, you have this character who's wheelchair bound. Yes. Don't know exactly why that's the case. Nope. But his legs are still <laughs> and his fingers and hands and arms are in constant motion, right? He's able to in rhythm. If you think about the way Tom Noonan, just the way he holds up three fingers. That's not a normal way that he spreads out his fingers. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, uh, for me, I could do the whole minute about Tom's fingers and the way in which he comes into this movie and, and sears himself in, into your brain. Yes. Uh, and, and as you say, anticipates part of the way the internet would work, anticipates a certain kind of dark web hacking <laughs> 30 years before, you know, <laughs> Uh, and, um, or, you know, whatever, 20, however many years before, 25 uh, years this year, yeah, 25 years, right. 25 years, uh, b b before now, but certainly anticipates the way in which 
the internet was going to affect uh, all of us. Um, Noonan's confidence in the scene and the little way in which, so a great thing that, that man does, and if there are, I know that there are people who are filmmakers and screenwriters who listen to your podcast over and over again. <laughs> uh, but here's what's really hard and important to do. That's an informational scene. That's an expository scene. But man builds conflict into it right from the beginning. Yes. The conflict is Tom Noonan's character is saying, uh, I should get a hundred thousand against the percentage for what De Niro is calling a cowboy score. I go in the front or and Noonan says, yeah, you go in the front and De Niro is basically like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yes. I, that's like you just pointing to a bank, right? The subtext here is De Niro saying, man, that's like you just pointing to a bank and telling me to run in. And the way the information about the score comes out, the thing that, you know, eventually makes him tell his gang that they should maybe not do it, but that he has to do it is, uh, so he has to get this information out, but the way he does it is by creating a fascinating character you haven't seen before in a movie, and then having that character be at odds with De Niro's character, and then having uh, this tense moment between them that ends with them making a deal. It's got a three-act structure. This little, tiny moment has a beginning, a middle, and an end point. Denouement, too, when, when at the end, Neil, who who needs information. Neil doesn't understand this information. Neil needs to understand, okay, how is this done? So in the future, I can understand this is where my kind of crime is going. Yes. And so this scene has everything in it that you need in a, in a, um, a much larger work. And whereas in a Bruckheimer movie, that would just be a computer geek standing up and telling you, there's a bank, this is the thing, go get it. And the, the guy would say, on it and give money here, built into this minute is huge amount of texture, story, and character. Yes. Conflict. And he's he's pressure testing. So uh, uh, the conflict coming in that sort of first act of this mini three-act structure, there's this beautiful pause. Like a, in the context of it, it's like a pregnant pause for it'd be like 10 minutes in a movie right, where, he, where he throws up, no, there's three hold-up alarms. Yes. Like that line delivery stumps neil he's like oh this guy's not going to bullshit me like yeah. y- you know this is through the front door no there are three hold up alarms and there's a big pause and noonan is staring in his eyes and once he realizes there's not going to be a conflicted response he's like cur- he's piqued his curiosity oh well he's demonstrated he knows what he's talking about and then he just sort of languidly goes into his next sentence you know but you know you go in overnight and and you've already tricked well, yeah, them out to man. call themselves and, and and then he 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 casually says, "I've got the boards built. I've already built them. I built them." And it's just <laughs> it's uh, and it and you could see Neil looking at him with like, "Okay, this guy's the real thing." But the other the other thing you have to talk about, and uh, I don't remember uh, how you dealt with with this minute the last time you talked about it, but I I didn't go back. I didn't want to go back and listen to that I didn't again. Want you I to want, go back. I didn't. I wanted this I, to be fresh. Uh, but there's foreshadowing, right? Because he's relied on Voight to set this up. Voight vouched for Kelso. Yes. And we see Voight calling Van Zant, and we see that Voight has slipped a bit. 
we see, in fact, that the guy that Neil has counted on to his, his most trusted ally is actually no longer to be fully trusted. Not because he's um, uh, uh, willfully or intentionally fucking Neil over, he's not, but because he's no longer sharp enough. He's no longer on top of it. Uh, and so what's set in motion in both of those, right there, the end of the movie is foretold. Yeah. It's, right? and, and, and it's that even- stand that through going after Van Zant, and because through being murderous and having to get this revenge on first Van Zant and then Wayne Grow, that that this moment here, the heist that they shouldn't attempt because they're gonna die and or get caught, and then this entanglement where they went for one too many. Uh these two things are gonna be the end of Neil. Yes. And we don't that watching the movie, but it's all right there. And- <laughs> it's it is it is beautifully there. And what's funny is, and we hadn't talked about it in as explicit terms in the last minute, especially around this minute. But what I want to go back to is you just cottoned on to something that I hadn't even thought of is Nate has already given Neil Wangro. And so when he even pitches Kelso in the scene that precedes this with those guys together, he's already got a level of disdain and hostility of like, who's this fucking guy? Like, you know, basically yes. in a way, like you've just given me this massive problem that I have to deal with now. And I'm going to find this guy and that's a problem. And obviously Nate is trying to regain ground and, and trust. Regain ground and trust. And so you get this and moment where he's like, oh, okay, well, no, I've got this other job for you and it's going to be good. And then also I'll, I'll try and squeeze as much out of the Van Zant deal. So we get double. And so him actually trying to restore this balance because man is so intent on like the, the balance of this universe, it starts to f- mess up the equilibrium of everything. So it's already done. Well, like it's already gone. Three you have to, but remember it's three things yes. because it's also Van Zant. Yes. It's the, ne- it's the next things of I'm going to find Van Zant too. So it's all off kilter from it's this. All moment. that stuff that, that uh, somehow, all backfires yes. uh, and Neil never looks to him as the, as the sort of root of the problem here. No. Uh, what's Boyd's character's name again? Nate. 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 Right. He's, he, yeah. yeah. He's, right. he's uh, based on Eddie Bunker. who's actually in Reservoir oh, Dogs. I love that. He looks like Eddie Bunker. He looks, actually, right. it looks a lot like Eddie Bunker. And at the time, oh. Michael Mann, the famous story is like, why don't you just hire the Eddie Bunker? Like, you've got the guy. <laughs> he wrote the book. He looks like who, what you want to look like. And man was like, no, I but want to work with you. Went and used Bunker. You didn't know that he could really act. I mean, you didn't no. know that he could really act. So, no. and and that role, the the role of Nate required a lot of dexterous acting. And and you've got to be toe to toe with De Niro, pissed off, right? So if you he's again, it's those actors who aren't going to wilt. And Tom Noonan is that guy who's just like, you take it or leave it. This is going to be a huge. You know, this is going to be a $12.3 million deal for you if you take this Correct. deal. Well, that's the other thing. It's great when he, he knows how much money is going to be there to within the $100,000. $12.2 million. $12.3 million. <laughs> and, uh, he's so good. So, I mean, what you're so right about even everything about his performative body language. Taking a scene, like so many scenes, the two people sitting at a table and him being anchored to the chair and then having this movement with his arms and just being able to dial in and have that ebb and flow. It's so like, it's so that power of like, if you have the right actor delivering that dialogue, which is seemingly nothing, you know, it's the Benicio del Toro of it all. Like it's the guy who comes in and, and, you know, 
takes to dialogue that's nothing because they gets the function in your great podcast of Chris McQuarrie. Have McQuarrie. you watched uh, Noonan's movies, his own movies? As in him performing in other movies than this or him as a director? Him as a writer-director. No, I haven't seen it. So he made one movie in particular that won Sundance one year, won the audience prize at Sundance, and uh, is such a great film and will give you such an incredible insight into him. It's called What Happened Was. And it's uh, the less said about it, the better, but you must watch it. What Happened Was, written and directed and starring Tom Noonan. Oh, my God. I mean, it won Sundance Film Festival one year, the I think the audience prize. And um, Tom, as you know, obviously Manhunter, all those, Tom is a, a, a legend for all the right all the right reasons. And <laughs> yes. he, uh, I know a bit about his process cause I worked with him and I studied acting under him. Uh, and really? under, yeah. And so I, I have an understanding of his process, which requires a fear, a kind of fearlessness. I mean, that's really what he teaches is a kind of fearlessness to, uh, be in the characters, uh, not thinking about what anybody wants you, uh, what anybody wants you to do. Um, I think when he gets a script, he crosses out every line of description that there is. And he's a great writer, too. So he understands text uh, incredibly well and is just fully uh, willing um, to go right to the edge, which I think served. You know, he and obviously he and man had this history together uh, because they weren't got really close, I think, when when they did Manhunter. Yeah. And um and so I think there was a trust be- between the two of them that allowed Tom to sort of be who he was. Just and, do and- just do your thing. You know, I think once you've got the short once you've once you've delivered the tooth fairy as as convincingly and as like terrifyingly and as committed as that performance required, all of those yeah. those those ebbs and flows, it's like, Oh yeah, you can do this. This is one scene. Correct. I just need you to I need you to make I need you to make De Niro believe that you're the future. It was two scenes. Oh yeah, originally. two, two really. Yeah. Oh, was it two scenes in the in the film? Yeah. Yes, there was a scene where where uh, Neil calls him and screams at him when it's gone bad, and they shot it, oh and it got God. cut. I did not Tom know that. Me, yeah, for sure. Because Tom told me that, that he got on the phone for Bob to call him. I, I'm not sure he and, – and for his cover for, for when Bob was doing it. And he talked about it. He would just answer the phone and he would want to give Bob the pissed off thing. So he would just go like, yeah, what? Like he – no fear. He Instead of I guess most people probably, oh, hi, Bob. I'm here if you – he said he just wouldn't do it. He was just like, yeah, let's – and just got Bob nuts. <laughs> That's so great. I love yeah. when things get cut and they should be because you don't right. – No, you don't want that. I don't want scene. that. No, I don't, I don't want it. I'm good the with movie it. Doesn't need it. The movie does not need that scene. No, it doesn't. But it was definitely shot. That scene was definitely shot. It's, it, it's the, There are tendrils of the movie that you hear about that were shot or originally written or then omitted that you're like, if you push this too far, you fall into a TV series. Like you just fall headlong into this is a six episode series for HBO and just go like just do that because it's not it stops becoming a movie I think that's what no, so it's is. really a movie. listen you're talking as we, as I said you're you're talking about a, a a movie made by a master a flawed masterpiece and uh, uh, a film that has to exist sort of exactly as it is right now I don't want I would want of course 
as you would, I would watch any version of this that man decided to put out. But I don't feel a great hunger for alternate versions. No, where you do for certain movies. And, um, and on uh, this, and on this podcast, when I kicked it off, it was literally two months before they brought out a 4K re-release um, where they'd cleaned up the print and it was the one that was shown to the Academy and they changed a couple of things. It was a little, you know, some edits for. Uh, speeding up certain scenes, and in the end, it's like maybe 20 seconds shorter overall in the entire film. And so yeah. we stuck with the 1995 theatrical version that was on Blu-ray from Warner Brothers. I'm like, no, I'm sticking with the original because, like, right. I can tell if that has half a second less in that edit. I can tell. I might be one yeah. of the only people in the world who can tell, <laughs> um, but I can tell. And so I'm like, no, I can't watch it. I have to watch. I have to maintain the original quality. Um, yeah. And and that. 35 mil print is still kicking around in fact in may in sydney again they do it once a year um at a repertory theater in sydney they're showing heat on 35 mil again and of course that's where i'll be on that night watching watching that can i ask when um what do you think you know you've been in the biz for this amount of time you were around when it was released and I, I can tell you're a guy who immediately is, you know, as many of us is like, oh, the Godfather 2 guys are in this movie. We're going to see it. Like, I have to see it. It's the first reunion of these guys. What do you think has it's aged into? Because that's the thing I'm always curious about is the sort of like true believers who loved this film from the outset and have sort of accepted it as a flawed masterpiece. But then you get to like now, 25 years later, it's really getting a second life in people's minds like no this is one of the great movies and so yeah. what do you think what do you think has changed in your, well, I, your ex- mind? I mean I think you can ex- expectations right i mean you brought so much to it the first time if you were an avid movie fan yes you it had to be every bit as good as the godfather and godfather 2 <laughs> for you to appreciate it which is impossible and, it's impossible and they have two brief scenes together you know three i guess three scenes together yes so it 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 couldn't at first live up to it. But of course, this is a movie that grows. Listen, this is what a masterpiece does is 25 years later, you're obsessed with it. And by you, I mean all of us. And, and that's, that's, um, I mean, I think that tells you why the movie's still here is because it's demanded it of us. Yes. It's really funny. There's a, I saw it on Twitter. I'm going to find it. I might cut it into the episode now, but there was William Friedkin is having a conversation with Nicholas Winding Refn. And he's, and as you can expect, Bill Friedkin is not a shy guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, um, winning Refn is kind of, you know, self-confident and he says, and he calls out and he says, look, I, I feel like drive and only God forgives are my masterpieces. And Friedkin takes umbrage with that immediately. He's like masterpieces, masterpieces. How old are your movies? He's like, Citizen Kane is a masterpiece. You know, 2001 Space Odyssey. It was made in 1968 and it is still fresh. That is a masterpiece. And it's like, I I think that despite how funny that little exchange is, um, there is a real, there is a real something about the, like things that last, you know, especially in the glut of content that we have right now. It's, it's, that's a masterpiece, right? Like, uh, but you may be in a small group that feels like you can recognize them at that time. Maybe you'll be wrong or maybe you'll be right. Because the canon, it is impossible in your time to decide what is or what is not canonical. Yes. But, for instance, when I saw uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, mm. that's a masterpiece yep. for me. Yep. And 
I'm certain in 10 years people will be watching that movie, and I'm certain in 20 years people will be watching that movie. Yeah. Uh, it's like No Country I, for Old Men. The first time I saw uh, it in the theater, I was like, that's a masterpiece. Well, they're, I mean, those guys have made almost nothing but masterpieces. They're my favorite. <laughs> they're, they're my favorite filmmakers who ever lived. So, oh, I mean, yeah, like F- Fargo is another masterpiece, The Big Lebowski, Raising Arizona, like Inside Lewis Davis. Just stop. They, like they, their whole career. They, I think Serious Man is a masterpiece oh, too. It's a so odd good. movie. Look, I, I just want to say, um, I just want to say thank you. This has been so wonderful. I wasn't a expecting to get more revelations. I wasn't a expect uh, b expecting to get a new project or c ever get a chance to talk to you about heat on a podcast. So this has hey, been man, everything a, it, that I've ever wanted. This is a total joy for me. Like I love your intelligence and your obsessiveness with this material. And uh, it's, I remember when I started listening to it, maybe you'd been doing it, maybe I, you'd made 50 minutes or something, but I went back to the first one and it was last summer and I was walking uh, somewhere outside in, in, near the, the beach and I just walked and walked and walked and did the first three, I think. And uh, I was like, oh, this is my kind of guy. These are my kind of people. <laughs> and so I was, that's why when you said it, I was like, even though I'm filming and it's impossible right now, I thought I have to make time. I have to find a way to do it. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I have to go rewrite a script. That's why I have to stop. But um, which Michael Mann would understand, I think. <laughs> and anyone who listens to this show is deeply appreciative of your of your time and that you have to go rewrite because you're that well, obsessive kind of guy that needs to make it perfect. I have, I'm obsessive, man. <laughs> I, I like those characters. Thanks so much. When you do Zodiac, oh. any minute you want me, I'm there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, ladies and gents. Brian Koppelman, you're the best. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks, bud. I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.